Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and beaches vacation.com. You've lived a great life and done well for yourself. But what mark will you leave on the world? How will you inspire future generations? Stan Miller and Katie Beth Hand have helped thousands of people answer exactly those questions. If you've ever wondered, what will be my legacy? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Your Life, Your Legacy podcast. Now, here are your hosts, Stan and Katie Beth. Well, welcome everyone. Welcome back to the Your Life, Your Legacy podcast with your hosts, Stan Miller and Katie Beth Hand. Today, we're excited to have a special guest, Kaya Jordan. Kaya, welcome. We're so glad to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Kaya, why don't you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do? Sure. I serve as a professional trustee for families, and that looks like a few different things. We engage with a lot of our families while they're alive and when they're thinking about their estate plans and looking at naming an independent trustee rather than a family member or a corporate trustee like a bank. And so we help families while they're alive think about their estate and what's going to happen once they're gone and then are able to continue their legacy and their plans as an impartial third party who does this professionally. Fantastic. That's great. Stan, do you want to kick us off with some questions that you might have for Kaya and what he does? Yeah, I have tons of questions. Since I read your bio and took a look at your website, I've just been really intrigued by how you position what you do. I see that you once upon a time were in the real estate business, but you you transitioned out of that to, uh, and I'm reading here for your bio where you said, I, I work alongside my clients to support their values and goals with sources and uses of wealth. I wrote a book about that. I'm going to send you a copy of it uh, so that in your spare time, you you won't be bored. But (laughs) I am really curious. You know, I love the way you frame that, but I don't exactly know what that means. What I'm hoping that you can do is tell us some stories. Give us some examples Mm -hmm. of what you do. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to. I think Stories are the best way to help people understand because it looks different for every individual and every family we work with. People relate to their money differently and they relate to their giving and their spending and their philanthropy differently. We have some clients who care deeply about aligning their values across how they invest their money and the good that their investments do in the world, how they spend their money, what kind of companies they're supporting, and then also how they give their money away. And thinking about making sure that the investments they are making aren't creating the problems that their philanthropy is trying to solve, right? That can be a a huge value misalignment for some families. So we we help them think about that. And that's where impact investing comes into the picture, a term that some people use to think about how do we do good in the world in the investments that we make. I have other clients that I'll use the word traditional in their investment perspective, get the most return out of where they put their money, And then in a very common manner, give their money away very generously as well. 
and don't always recognize there's a whole spectrum in between about being strategic about how you both give an investor money. So we help clients think through that. I, as a trustee, there is times when the beneficiary may, let's say, work for a nonprofit or, uh, for example, a beneficiary of an estate. Parents pass away and they leave money in a trust. And the grandkid, for example, let's say works for an environmentally focused nonprofit and their focus is on environmental conservation and preservation. And dad named his best buddy from college trustee who felt like it'd be great to go hire a big bank to manage the money. And typical portfolio, there's a bunch of money invested in oil. And this beneficiary now has a guilty conscience of spending their life doing work that the money they're living off is in stark contrast to their life goals, right? That's a big separation and dichotomy there. And so we approach every situation with understanding the values of the client and how do we align what's going on in their investment portfolios with their lifestyle as well and how do they think about that. So, so was that a real fact pattern I just heard? It, it is. It is actually. And I have right now, gosh, quite a few grandkid trusts that I'm the trustee of. And these are kids that are all under 21. So they're still figuring life out. And there are provisions that allow for trustees to make investments that can be aligned with clients that still fall within an acceptable asset allocation in a portfolio so that I'm still doing my duty as appropriately investing this, but for the benefit of the, of the child's values and income. So as trustee, are yeah. you choosing those investments? So one of the distinctions that my firm has is we're not an RIA, a registered investment advisor. So we don't manage money. I see that as a conflict of interest, serving as trustee and managing money. Now that's you know a stark difference between a corporate trustee, a bank that's right. going to manage money and service trustee. I see it as a conflict of interest because I want to choose the best investment managers and products that align with what the client needs. And I have a disincentive to do that if I'm also charging based on managing the money myself. So I have a separate fee. I have this fee as a trustee, and then I separately go and find the investment advisors that are best fit for that trust for that client. So I am managing the managers to make sure that the products they offer, the returns that they're creating, and those things are in the best interest of the beneficiary. Terrific. One of the questions, that, and I am genuinely excited to have the opportunity to, mm -hmm. to ask you these questions because you're doing some things that, you know, that are really in our wheelhouse here. And I'm, here, I'm really curious to hear your take on this. So one of the issues that's really near and dear to our heart is working to figure out how to get the senior generation and younger generations to interact systematically during the lifetime of the senior generation and to build rituals and ceremonies around that so that the kids become, you know, the younger generations become really engaged. I'm really curious to hear what your thoughts are about that, how you go about doing that, yeah. and maybe to hear some couple of examples of where it's worked, maybe where it hasn't worked. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's could be a whole nother podcast, right? And series of podcasts you might see on, on my shelf back here. I have a couple of James E. Hughes Jr.'s books on family wealth, and he has yep. a great approach to that. A couple of examples that I deal with. 
you know, when I engage a family, often the question comes up of how transparent should I be with my kids and grandkids about what they're getting? And there's always a level of comfort that we have to reach on how much they share, right? Some, some people just go, I don't want to complicate things by sharing all this because I'm concerned that they'll just be waiting for me to die, right? Or there's the, I really want them to know because I don't want them to wait around for me to die. And I have one, well, I have a few clients that have chosen transparency. And that means that we will have an annual meeting or maybe not quite annual if nothing's changed, but it clarifies to their kids how big the estate is. And, you know, there's usually an age that's appropriate or a maturity level that's appropriate in which thinking about, hey, can my kids understand hearing that my estate's $15 million or $30 million or frankly, $5 million. And when we pass away, this is what's going to happen. We have clients that say, look, you're only going to get X numbers of dollars and the rest goes to charity, no matter what, no matter how big the estate is. Today, I was on a call with someone who were putting together a picture of their estate for them. And as we're going through this, I'm formulating, I'm answering this question on how we're going to engage this client because they have an incredibly complex estate, multiple entities for every piece of real estate they own, uh, very complex. And initially I had been told that one of the children in the estate would probably step up to manage this when the, the father passes away. And as I'm going through this, I realize there's conflicts. There's a son that works in the same industry, but he's not the one that's going, that's expected to step up and do this. And all of them have full-time jobs. And this is a very complex estate. And if they don't uh, articulate well what's going to happen when the father passes, there could be, I mean, the family could crumble. And I'm not exaggerating. I've seen this. I've, I've seen family members that don't talk to each other anymore because one of them was named trustee and the sibling thought they were doing it poorly when the mom passed away and then they sued them. And I've stepped in to be the trustee for the one that was being sued after she passed away. And so there's a level of transparency that I think is necessary in most cases. I like to say that the money has to be helpful, not hurtful, and it has to be a tool, not a crutch. And if it's going to be hurtful and a crutch, then we have to figure out what level of transparency and communication is going to get through to the next generation. So what are some of the fears you hear senior generation family members articulating to you? What are they afraid of? Yeah, they're afraid of eroding the work ethic that they had by allowing next gen or grandkids in many cases to know there's money coming. I have this very specific example. One of the clients I've worked with for 16 years, early on when his kids were all, gosh, his grandkids, sorry, were all under 10 years old. He created a little LLC and put gifted a little bit of real estate interest into it. And over the last 15 years, it's grown to a significant amount. He's been exchanges every time a property sells. And now that some of the grandkids are adults, they get the K-1 distributed to them, telling them how much money that made. And I remember the first year that he had to do that for the oldest grandson, we had a conversation about it. And he said, I don't know that I want them to know how much money's in here. They're reaching college age. I want them to go through college. I want them to go get a career and have to work their butts off to earn this. And now I'm concerned about this taking away some of that work ethic or need to hustle. And this is a guy who's 
81 now, who paid his way through college, working in the fields in the weekend, in the summers, and then scrapped his way with a franchise before he made a significant amount of wealth. And that's the fear. What am I taking away from my kids or grandkids that was beneficial to me in building my estate? Have you designed in or worked with planners who've designed in incentive provisions to be a speed bump for that? <laughs> I have one particularly where the two sons are in, in high school. Unfortunately, their father passed away a year and a half ago. It was an accident. Fortunately, his sons and, and wife are not with him. But they have, upon receiving their bachelor's degree, they get all of the income from their trusts. Now, that sounds like an incentive, except there's so much money that they will have no incentive to work even upon getting their bachelor's degrees. So right now I'm thinking through how do I start educating them? They're young. They, you know, the, one of them just turned 16 to think appropriately about the role that this will play in their life. And then thinking about what mechanisms as a trustee, based on what the trust says, can I not alter or usurp? That's definitely not it. Don't be sneaky is one of my trustee rules help educate them early on who the professionals are going to be in their life and how to see this money as a tool, not a crutch. Right. And so there's that one of, this is an incentive. You have to go get a degree, but I wish there was more in there. I've seen other ones that they pay out over time. So it's very clear, Hey, you'll get a portion at 30, a portion at 40, the rest at 50. It all just depends how big of a windfall each one of those is. You know, we've designed in provisions that that have matching provisions mm-hmm. that say that uh, you know that if you're a grown up and you're healthy and yep. and for you have know, every reason in the world you could be working yep. doing new new productive things. We've drafted provisions that that provide that you actually don't get anything from the trust from the inheritance until you actually produce and do things and then show up with a K one. And then we have a match and we've done matching formulas for it. I've even drafted exceptions for to exempt a beneficiary from those provisions if they did legitimate charitable activities as determined by an independent committee who looked at what the kid was doing and determined it was authentically valuable. You know, I think there's a lot of opportunity here because what we know, right, is that wealth has incredible power to make a positive difference in people's lives, but it also has an incredible power to be destructive. Yes. And so yes. our job is to thread that needle, to walk the line between creating the opportunity for our clients' families to really live their best lives, but not destroy them. Yep. No, that's fantastic that I've worked through that similar concept with another trust where it would be a bring in your W-2 and I'd match it. And I think with that particular individual, it's, it's the right process to go. So yeah. yeah. Let me pivot a bit about, and I want to talk about charitable things again, because Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I will tell you, I'm a huge advocate of this idea. Katie Beth and I both are advocates of this idea that that serious, engaged uh, philanthropy is one of maybe the best antidote to the destructive power of wealth. Just this idea of, of practicing systematic acts of generosity, uh, you know, and having a, the senior generation tee that up so that it's there for the you know, for the younger generations when they come along. You know, what I've found is that if the senior generation made the money, the second generation is not so much a risk because they they kind of remember when mom and dad didn't have a lot, right? 
know, they remember driving, you know, the old car and uh, not taking vacations and, you know, and having dad work nights and weekends, all that, right? It's the grandkids that are really at risk because when the grandkids emerge into the world, they, when they become conscious, they realize they're wealthy and they, and they never really have any connection with where that wealth came from. And so we, you know, we're pretty big advocates of having the senior generation develop some kind of a charitable structure, a donor advised fund, a private foundation, you know, whatever it is. But one of the things that we run into from, you know, fairly frequently is a concern that senior generation family members have that maybe the charitable objectives of the grandkids might really be wildly different from their charitable Mm -hmm. objectives. Mm -hmm. Have you bumped into that? That's yes. You're, I see that growing. I have not fortunately had to run into the situation yet in which senior generation is saying, this is for you to give away. And then the, let's say grandchildren, third generation, realizing that there are strings attached to that. They, they can't really give it away because there's an idealism or expectation around it that may separate from their values. But fortunately, I haven't run into that. I'm on the on a few boards for clients where they have small private foundations and helping to facilitate bringing in the next gen to be a part of that giving. And I think one of the areas that I've seen it done successfully is when they're focusing on the community rather than the cause. So when they've said, hey, let's focus on giving into our community where we live, not focus on this specific cause, because it allows for a little more breadth in what the interests are of each family member, but still within a region that they can see the impact of it and engage in it. And so there's been a little bit more focus on engaging in where they're giving. And maybe that's been a way to avoid some of the disparity maybe between their where they want to give it, you know, in terms yeah. of the cause. That makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. I'm curious if you observed, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think how to, fr- how to frame this question, but mm-hmm. one of the things that I've come to believe is that ritual and ceremony has lots of power. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things we talk to clients about is building ritual and ceremony into our family charitable meetings so that there is a depth of emotional connection to it that gives it resonance that we hope will cause it to last for generations. And one of the one of my projects right now is to hear about how different families have done that. I've done things, for example, like advocate that whenever we have the family meeting, we always serve the same food item, just as an example, you know. Yeah. But, you know, I want to have the kids when they come to the meeting and the grandkids when they come to the meeting to have a particular mindset and to have an emotional connection to it. And I'm really curious to hear if you've, if you've had family members who've done this in a particular way, you know, have the meeting in a specific location, do it in a specific way, develop readings or rituals around that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Any any of this resonate? You know, I have, I have two clients that have particularly brought in kind of some of their religious traditions where they're in the month of December, you know, either Jewish traditions or Christian traditions around the holidays and thinking, thinking about what they have and their gratitude and kind of that, maybe that period of time bridging to major ceremonies, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas, right. um, being a time where the, the Thanksgiving really starts and the giving Tuesday. And as you move into, into Christmas and thinking about the gift giving, and that is kind of a natural time. 
in some ways to think about it. There's the, the benefit of the end of the tax year to start thinking about when to give as well. So there's a right. coinciding thing there, but having like a formal meeting about it as well. So I've had clients do it where they are bringing some of that tradition in. I grew up with a family that had a lot of those rituals around holidays. We had very specific meals for each thing. And my mom cooked, you know, outside of our American tradition at different times of the holidays and in food. So I have very specific, you know, meals around certain times of the year and holidays. So I have two clients that do that with a little more of their faith tradition and bringing the giving into that season of their life that I think binds both the family and then the action as well from it. So one more question, because I know Katie Beth has some questions too. Yeah. Um, what, just in terms of legal structure, what are you finding works best or is most common in your experience? Is it a donor advice fund, a supporting org, a private foundation, you know, public foundation? What are you doing there? Yeah. So I kind of approach it from two angles. There's the size and the formality of the structure that the client wants to lead them towards one versus the other. The donor advice fund is fantastic if you don't want to spend the time on the compliance side of it, the tax returns, the legal structure, the corporate minutes, all of those types of things. And maybe if you don't have a a sizable enough estate that you see a family member engaging in in it as a part-time or full-time job. Donor advice fund is a great way to go in in that regard. I have some clients that, you know, the private foundation... Often the numbers rolled out there, you need $5 million or more to kind of make that happen or worth it on the expense side. And I have some clients that have done that. And it's, you know, a great tool when they're thinking about family legacy and bringing people into it. Now, those can often be tools for funding at death. So they start it small and it's a piece of the family. And then there's a state plan might pour over everything beyond the exempt estate size into Mm -hmm. that. I have a number of clients that have gone the charitable remainder trust route. And a lot of that is often prompted by a highly appreciated asset that they don't want to do another real estate 1031 exchange out of, but take, have income in life and then have this donation at passing. So that's been another pretty strong model. I have a lot of clients with real estate that end up in that space. And sometimes they choose to make gifts during life that they thought they would do when they're gone out of those. So I think both the size and the formality of structure. I have some clients that they have the size to do a private foundation, but donor advised fund is really the route they go because they don't want to think about the formality of it. And they don't see it as a family legacy. Sometimes they'll add their kids as the successor advisors. You can do one generation as successor advisors in a donor advised fund. I have a client who has their own donor advised fund with their children named successor, but then they're Kids have already started donor advice funds that they'll also additionally fund. So it's kind of pushing, like, rather than holding the long-term legacy themselves, they're saying, we want you, NextGen, to have ownership of this without the strings attached and the freedom. Yeah, terrific. Great insights. Great insights. Katie, I know you have questions. I do. Actually, most of mine have been answered. So thank mm-hmm. you for that, Kaya. I guess if I had to ask one more, it would be, the name of your your office is the Impact Family Office. So what would you say that you would like for your impact and your legacy to be? It's a great question. I think, and we discuss this as a team often and all the time, we see our impact. We operate as a B Corp, as a certified B Corp. So how we operate, the values that we have as a company, we see 
impact being done in the work we do every day. And then we bring a lens to the way we work with clients that I would love the legacy to be for us that we help families think more intentionally rather than being accidental about their legacy and that we're able to make that transition easier for them and easier for the kids. Even if it's expected when someone passes, there's a transition and it can be rough and it can elicit a lot of emotions and we can help shepherd that legacy into the next generation. And we can help with that value alignment and thinking about not just feeling good about what they have, but really knowing that it's going, that it's producing returns in more than just finances in their world, in their life, that it's benefiting their philanthropy. It's benefiting the the kids and the grandkids in a way that's more than just wealth. You know, you, you have to think about wealth in multiple ways. You have to think about it as both the human capital, the social capital, the intellectual, and the financial. And so if you only focus on the financial piece of it, you'll have missed the point. And that's where I think families can go awry without it being something that's cohesive, but instead is something that's derisive in the family. That is a great answer. Is there anything else that we didn't cover, Kaya, that you would like to cover while we're here? You know, I think I would just always want to encourage families of significant means who are thinking about how things pass to really be intentional about it. In the last three years, I've had three unanticipated passings and some that have planned well for it and and some that haven't. And it's it's really you know beneficial for those that are on the receiving side to have an estate that's been well thought through and then passed on intentionally, because it can be really hard to manage the administrative side of an estate while grieving and while mourning. And like you actually mentioned early on, Stan, is this level of transparency that prepares people to deal with what's going to happen when they're in a state of mind that they can is really, frankly, it's really loving to do it while while they're alive and prepare people earlier on, even though that's a hard conversation to have. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That is great advice. Well, Kaya, thank you so much for joining. For those of you who are listening, this is the Your Life, Your Legacy podcast with Stan Miller and Katie Beth Hand. And our guest today was Kaya Jordan. Kaya, thank you so much. Kaya is from the Impact Family Office, and we will have all of his information linked in the show notes. Thank you again, Kaya. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Your Life, Your Legacy podcast with Stan Miller and Katie Beth Hand. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about Stan and Katie Beth, go to PinnacleLegacyLaw.com. You can also find links in the show notes.